I'm Deborah Norville. I'm anchor of Inside Edition, the longest-running daily anchor in American television, and sometimes wear a business hat. I'm a director of the Viacom Corporation. I think we as women have to get more comfortable with the idea of saying, I bring this to the party, I'm excellent at that, you need these capabilities, and I have them to offer. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Deborah Norville is an award-winning television anchor, host of Inside Edition, and Viacom board member. She discusses the key lessons she's learned from career setbacks and what motivates her to stay in the game. You got a dream job at age 31 as anchor of the Today Show. What's your advice for women who want that? Oh no no no! Let me correct job you. Early on, yeah. let me correct Please. you. The dream job ended when I was 31. Ended. Okay, so but yeah, the dream job started when I was 29. I think 29 or 30. I'd have to do the math. At 28. I really had the best job in television. At 28, I was the only solo anchor on American um, network television. I did a show called NBC News at Sunrise, which um, was the victim of its own success. We were so um, heavily watched that all the local stations went, oh, you mean people are up at 6 in the morning? Let's do a local news show. So NBC News at Sunrise kept getting moved earlier and earlier, and it really, I I think it's still on. It should be NBC News in the middle of the night because definitely the sun is nowhere close (laughs) to rising. But it was a great job because I got to do it by myself. I got to be the authority woman figure alone, and that wasn't something that young women in America were getting to see. Um, And it was such an exciting time. I mean, look, we're both journalists. It was when communism was being shown for everything it wasn't, and nations were becoming independent at the drop of a hat. It got to be a game. Quick, what's the capital of Bulgaria? Bulgaria. It's Bulgaria. You know where my mind is. (laughs) Um, It's Sofia. And um, the Ceausescu's got assassinated. The MiG jets were shot down coming from Libya by the Americans, and we went this close to war. The Pan Am 103 jet was exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland. All of this happened when I was doing this show. So for a journalist, it was amazing. And so to answer your question, how do you get the dream job? At such a young age. At any age. But younger is better because then you get to have the dream job for longer. Or you decide, this dream job has been great. Let's go find another dream job and let's make that happen too. So what's the process for doing that? First of all, you got to dream it. If you don't see it, you can't be it. You've got to visualize, you've got to imagine what that job is and how would it look if I had that job. And that's with college-age children. That's a question I ask my kids. Who has the job you want? And if they can answer that, that's great because then we got something to work with. Too many young people today don't know what it is they want. There are a lot of young people, and I would add to that. People many years out of college, yeah, yeah. established people Mm -hmm. who still don't know what they want to do. They're fine with what they're doing, but it doesn't necessarily make their heart sing every day when they go to work. You know, it is called work, but you, if you've got a great gig, it doesn't feel like work. So you first got to, got to imagine it. You got to name it. You got to figure out what it is. Then you figure out what the, what the qualifications are and then figure out how to do an end run around it. Because if you do the qualifications, it's going to take you forever. So the best advice to anybody who wants to be successful is be brilliant at everything you ever do. And what that means is 
Um, be there before you're supposed to. Um, my son played football for Duke University, and Coach Cutcliffe down there had a wonderful expression. He said, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're already late. Those are words to live by. Um, know more than you need to know so that if somebody has a question that they don't even know that they're going to be asking, you already know the answer. So have a really broad breadth of knowledge. And I honestly think that's what contributed to my success. I have this weird spongy kind of memory. I just remember stuff. And before Google had been invented, I would just retain stupid, obscure facts. I couldn't remember what I was supposed to get at the grocery store. But if you needed me to tell you what the GDP of Japan was, I actually knew that because at that time in my life it mattered. It yeah. does not matter now. I have no idea. But those kinds of things really prepare you to be ready for when the opportunity comes your way. So, Deborah, when you were growing up, I heard that you were an occasional caregiver for your mom. Yeah. I'm one of four daughters. Grew up in northwest Georgia. My hometown is Dalton, Georgia, carpet capital of the world. We make enough carpeting on an annual basis to pave a six-lane highway around the equator, <laughs> which is how you say it when you come from Dalton, Georgia. So the fact that I have a career as a national broadcaster is kind of amazing. Um, the accent was definitely something I had to jettison. Yeah. But... Um, um, my mother was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis when I was 10 years old. And um, at that time in the 70s, there weren't a lot of treatment options. And her physical condition grew progressively worse to the point that when I was, I think, 14 years old, she was mostly bedridden. Um, when I was 15, I think it was, my father divorced my mother. Uh, by the time I was 16, um, she was, you know, in a wheelchair, but, you know, it, her condition was getting progressively mm -hmm. bad. And she passed away when I was 20. Oh, yeah. And um, I can remember every birthday and Christmas, we would say, hey, mom, what do you want? Her answer was always the same, just a pair of new arms and new legs. Oh. And so when you grow up with a, a parent who is disabled, yeah. uh, particularly when it's your mother, because moms do so much around the house, it makes you incredibly competent. And so it was no big deal to cook dinner for six because that's how many there were in our family. Wow. When I got out of college, to cook dinner for one or two was really a challenge because I didn't know how to, like, pare it down. But ironing, cooking, laundry, washing the car, doing the grocery shopping, mom would drive the car. But we would go into the store with the grocery list, and if we didn't know which brand of something she wanted, we would walk out to the parking lot with oh. one can in each hand, and, Mom, which one do you want? And she'd say which one. And, of course, they knew what my mom's situation was, small-town yeah. grocery store. They knew we weren't shoplifting. Right. And we'd go in and say, oh, this is the one Mom wants. And that was the way I grew up. And now, as a mother of three myself, mm -hmm. I have benchmarked how old I was at certain points in my own childhood, mm -hmm. knowing what my mother's lack of ability was, and been very cognizant of that. When um, when I was 20, that was when my mom died. Mm -hmm. And so when each of my kids hit 20, I went, wow, imagine if I weren't here to tell you how to get insurance, <laughs> tell you how to do, you know, set up your doctor's appointments, yeah. all those things that 20-year-olds today don't know, and this 20-year-old didn't know when she was 20 either. Wow. How did that affect you as a person? As a oh, I think um, it, when people hear the story, the, the look on your face says it all. It's like, oh, my God, that's so sad. And it was sad um, because all my mom wanted to do was get those new arms and legs and take us to Paris shopping. That was <laughs> always her dream. Yeah. Um, and so when she passed away, it was actually, it was hard, 
but it was not something that I could feel a great deal of despair about because mm. I knew my mom was no longer in pain. Mm. Of course, the irony of it is she died the day her first grandchild was due to be delivered. So you know what is it they say, the Lord takes one and he gives one. Yeah. And that definitely was the case in my family. But I think what it did is it made me very competent. Uh, my sisters and I are all very able people. We are accomplished um, because we didn't have a choice. Right. You know, if you don't have a choice, you know, yeah. you, you buck up and you, you get it done. And I think that's the kind of person I am. And so it probably has also, conversely, because it's not all good, it's probably made me somewhat impatient with people who say I can't. Hmm. Because I can't means you're bedridden and you need to have skin grafts because of the decubitus sores. That's I can't. Mm. I can't because I don't know how or I never tried it before. Mm -mm. That's not acceptable. I don't suffer that very well. But anything you attempt in life that, ah, that didn't work out, either you fail miserably, but you learn something in the process, or best case scenario, it works. And something really cool has just happened in your life. Coming up, Deborah Norville talks about finding the strength to bounce back in the face of public scrutiny. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. So when you left the Today Show, mm -hmm. some, or even before you left, some people were really critical and said you were a job stealer of, of Jane Pauley. How did you deal with that very public criticism? Oh, it wasn't public criticism. My career ended. My career, as Ken Clark of the Chicago Tribune so elegantly put it, I was used up thrown out and left for dead on the side of the road. I kept going for as long as I could. But then when my first child was about to be born, mm -hmm. it became quite clear that NBC didn't want me any there. They perceived me as a problem. And for those who know, what the world are we talking about? This is so long ago, and it is so long ago. Um, Jane Pauley had been the longtime anchor of the Today Show. I was the news reader. And Jane had asked to be relieved of the early morning duties. She'd been doing it for know, over a decade or something like that. And I was to be her successor. But they didn't move quickly enough. I didn't know I was going to be the successor, but Jane had asked off. And NBC didn't take any action. Um, long story short, stories started appearing in the press saying that I was trying to push around. Like, I didn't know where this was coming from. I can certainly speculate. Um, but that and 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee, and it doesn't matter. The point is, there was a lot of ugly press. Uh, my first baby was born. Someone said I had gotten pregnant so I could save my job. I'm like, you clearly are not a working mom because right. every working parent out there will tell you how easy their careers are once they have kids. And so when my son was born, and there had been all these terrible articles written about me, and I had a long list, like you've got typing paper right here, 
Um, my assistant had legal, remember those yellow legal pads? She had, I think, three or four pages long of members of the media who wanted to talk to me about this kerfuffle that was going on on the Today Show. Mm -hmm. And the communications brass at NBC said, nope, you can't talk to them. Well, trust us, Deborah, we're experts at this sort of thing. A verbatim quote from the woman who was the head of communications at NBC News. And I kind of thought that was a really bad strategy just as a journalist. I, you know, you fill the vacuum. And my agent said, if you speak to the press, you have been given an order not to. And if you do so, they actually would have grounds to fire you for insubordination. Oh, wow. So I needed my job. Yeah. I needed that money. I had a mortgage to pay. I wasn't in a position that I could say, screw you, I'll talk to the press anyway. So I kept my counsel and didn't say anything. But then when my child was born, my healthy little baby who was born the same day the Gulf War ended, as Norman Schwarzkopf is standing there in Riyadh telling the world how he won the war, Deborah Norville is pushing and having her first child. So Nikki was born and People Magazine called and people said, we'd really like to come and do a story about your new baby. And I'm like, come on over, Mr. People Magazine person. And People Magazine sent Harry Benson, the renowned photographer. If you think of the iconic shot of the Beatles arriving in America in 1960-whatever, coming down that, back when they had the staircases for the planes, he took that picture. The iconic picture of... Ethel Kennedy with her hand up like this, moments after Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated in California, Harry Benson took that picture. Hmm. And they're sending Harry Benson to take my yeah. picture with my brand new little baby? Yes. So they did a story. It was a beautiful story, lovely pictures. There was one picture of me nursing my child. Now, mind you, Chrissy Everett had a baby six weeks later. They took the same picture. She didn't get a peep. I called her up and said, you're welcome, because I took all the flack. Deborah Norville, nursing in public. I was in public. I was in my house. I have evening dresses that show more skin <laughs> than this particular photograph. But it was a hue and cry, and that same person at NBC News was quoted in the newspapers saying, of this People magazine story, this will typecast Deborah and put her in a motherhood role and be negative for her career. I'm like, Whoa. Deborah Norville is a mom. That is bad for her career. How did you handle that? I did what any normal, sensitive, sensible person would do. I completely torpedoed down. Um, I had a massive collapse. Great. I was hugely depressed. Um, some women struggle with postpartum depression. Yeah. I struggled with post-today depression. I resigned my position. I said I want to stay home with my child because the truth was, at that point, all I could do was stay home. Mm -hmm. And I did not leave my house except to go to well baby visits for probably close to two months. Wow. Yeah. How did you come back from that? Um, the same way I got there the first time. Working hard, knowing more than the other people, studying my rear end off, and being willing to do the jobs that other people thought were beneath them. Mm -hmm. And so... I got a call from ABC Radio. Now I've been the anchor of the Today Show. I'd walk down the hall and say, hello, Mr. President, as I'm going this way and he's going that way, right? That's what it's like to be the anchor of the Today Show. It's kind of cool. And I get a call from ABC Radio to do a talk radio show. And most people would go, wah, wah. And I was like, yeah, that really, I was just so happy somebody wanted me. Mm. 
Um, but I wasn't ready to do anything. And we had decided to move out of the country for several months just because the press was still so bad. And I said, well, um, I don't um, I don't think, you know, I want to do the show that you're doing. They said, oh, we want to change the format, news, current events. Well, I really want to stay home with my kid. Oh, it's fine. We'll put the these things here in your home. Uh, every flag I threw up, I said, oh, well, we're going to leave the country. We won't be back until September. They said, we'll wait. And it was like, God wants me to do this. Mm-hmm. And so I did this three-hour radio show without a script every night, newsmaker interviews. Um, it was just really cool. And I got myself back. I realized, wait a minute. It's the first job I'd ever had where, look, you're a beautiful blonde. I'm sure that there have been times in your career where you thought, yeah, you know, do my looks have anything to do with me getting this job? When you're on the radio, your looks had nothing to do with you getting this job. And I felt really confident about that. And when contractually I was able to get back into television, the lovely people at CBS News came over to my house and wined and dined me in my own house. So I guess I was, I was providing the wine and the dine, but they were doing the sales pitch. And I joined CBS News and worked for Ed Bradley's show. Amazing. That's a great comeback. So some people will say that women have a shelf life in TV, but I'm wondering if that's changing. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's changing. I think it's changing for a lot of reasons. First of all, we all of us who work in front of a camera owe a huge debt of gratitude to Barbara Walters. Yes. Barbara insisted on staying there. And we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Nancy Dickerson, John Dickerson's mom, who was the woman I remember seeing doing a five-minute news cut-in when I was a little girl, like seven or eight years old. And she had the perfect bouffant hair in the 60s with the little flippy thing that went up. And she was credible and she was authoritative. So we had these women who decades ago started their career and opened the door for the rest of us. And I think we can stay as long as we want to. Because here's the other thing we got going for us. I'm a baby boomer. There are more of us than anything else. We are the demographic that the advertisers still want to reach because we got a lot of money to spend. So people people like people like themselves. So if I'm age appropriate for a big chunk of people who've got money to spend, but most importantly, what keeps you there is your performance, is your success, is in my business, the ability to deliver a large audience to the advertisers who spend a lot of money on Inside Edition. I feel confident that I will be able to continue in the role of presenting these interesting, sometimes informative, and sometimes like, you've got to be kidding me. Did they make that up? (laughs) Stories. You're on the board of Viacom. How do we get more women on corporate boards? I think there's been a wonderful push. I'm proud to say the Viacom board has been 50% women for quite some time. The board of the new combined company will also um, be uh, 50% women. The uh, Women's Forum regularly salutes, we call them our our corporate champions, um, companies that have increasing percentages of women on boards. And the most important way to do it is, I'd like to say it's the headhunters, but it's women on boards bring women on boards. Mm. So I'm on a board. I'd love to be on another board. Um, Women on other boards will go, oh, wait a minute. She's got capabilities that we need in our mix. So I think it's important for women who are capable women to make sure that their capabilities are known. I think I'm raised in the South, and it wasn't done that you brag about yourself or that you sort of, you know, get out there, which is kind of weird how I get up on TV. Um, 
And it's hard for me to brag about myself. I can brag about the accomplishments of my show Mm -hmm. and say I had a role to play in that. It's really hard for me to say I'm this, that, and the other. Um, I think we as women have to get more comfortable with the idea of saying, I bring this to the party. I'm excellent at that. Um, You need these capabilities, and I have them to, to offer. How does that not come off as aggressive? Because some people it does. May That's the that thing. It does. It comes off as awfully aggressive. So you have to have that conversation with the woman who's on a board. Yeah. You know, a woman to woman, that's an easier conversation to have. Woman to a mixed group, you're right. It sounds real self-important, and nobody likes self-important. Let's talk about finances a little bit. Your husband's a financial advisor to the wealthy. What's the biggest financial lesson he's taught you? I actually have to say my financial education began with my mother, who was an anomaly for her time. As we discussed at the beginning of the conversation, she was um, bedridden and and fighting a battle with rheumatoid arthritis for the second half of my childhood. But before that, before she married my dad, she was kind of an anomaly in that she was an officer for a hosiery and underwear company. I don't know if anybody listening remembers Buster Brown Socks, but my mom worked in merchandising for Buster Brown Socks, which was sort of something women in the late 50s didn't do. And my mom taught me, I think, the most important financial lessons because what she taught my sisters and I, what she taught my sisters and me was independence, Mm. that women in particular need to have financial independence, and you can never start too early. Uh, to achieve that financial independence. Um, Compounding is your friend, and don't be afraid to take risks. So you're very hardworking. You have a reputation as being extremely hardworking in the industry. What motivates you? Presumably at this point, you don't need the money. It's fun. It's fun. I um, Like literally, as Ava will tell it, Ava's on the camera behind me. She was walking us down here to the podcast room, and I got one of these crazy alerts. And the alert was that somebody's videos, the United States Navy is confirming that it's an anomaly. It's UFOs. We've got UFOs. So immediately (laughs) as we're, I'm I'm, I'm texting as we're walking down the stairs, the fact that I'm not dead is amazing. And I'm sending to my executive producer, we got to look into this. This could be our lead story. The Navy might be telling us there's UFOs. Now this is probably not true. And this is, but this is why I do what I do. What role does gratitude play in your life? Oh, my God, it's huge. I literally wrote the book on it. Um, I wrote a book called Thank You, Power, and the subtitle is the gist of it, Making the Science of Gratitude Work for You. And this was the first look that anybody had taken at the research, this the, the academically peer-reviewed published research on gratitude. And I took it and translated it in a way that normal people like you and me could understand it and put this book out and was knocked out by the impact of the book. It made the bestseller list here in America. It made the bestseller list in South Korea. It was published in, I think, 16 languages. Um, Merci la vie is the name in French. (laughs) I can't tell you what it is in Croat, but it got published in that language. Um, And the gist of gratitude is when you focus on your blessings, of which all men have many, as Dickens told us, you start a process that the experts call the upward psychological spiral. And it does brighten your mood. But along with that, it also excites the same part of your mind as where strategic thinking, cognitive associations, and logic happens. 
this part right here. You know, when you were mm -hmm. a kid in school and your teacher would hit you, you weren't thinking, you're just literally trying to activate the cerebral frontal cortex because that's where your thinking is happening. When you're in a state of gratitude, you've activated your dopamine receptors, which are also in there. So gratitude, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, focus on what you're grateful for. You will find yourself more adept. Time now for your secrets. I'm Deborah Norville, anchor of Inside Edition, and my money tip is money is like a tree. The best time to start saving is 20 years ago. But if you didn't start then, start today. For more episodes, head to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite audio provider. And be sure to check out our Secrets of Wealthy Women video series on WSJ.com for free. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. Coming soon from the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts.